ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming. Yo, yo, people, how's it going? Hope you're all doing well wherever you are in the world. And as I mentioned a few episodes ago over the up and coming days and weeks, I would be doing five podcasts all based around a different alternative perspective to what is going on currently in the world with COVID-19. I really wanted to attack all different areas from psychological, from a spiritual, from a biological and a medical point of view. So the people that have that are coming up in the next few podcasts on this thing and including this one, as you will see, will it'll all make sense. And I really have the people that I've picked, I really do feel that can give a good perspective from many different levels, like I said before. But this pod- podcast today with Dr. Andrew Kaufman really is an interesting one in my opinion. He has been making, somebody who's been making a lot of noise. I'm not sure if you guys have checked out any of his recent talks he's been doing or podcasts or even videos he's been doing. But he really has been making many big waves in terms of an alternative perspective to what only the media is feeding us. As you know, he's been really speaking counter to what the mainstream narrative has been telling us and he stated that the virus is not causing a new disease and there is no evidence of increased mortality and modern medicine is the leading cause of death having studied at MIT uh, the Duke and the Medical University of South Carolina he's also published original research lectured supervised and mentored medical students in many different specialties his knowledge and, and experience has qualified has qualified him his as an expert witness in local and state and federal courts. He has many other credentials as well and comes with many other complementary degrees. As you know, this uh, Dr. Kaufman really does um, he really does pack a punch, in my opinion, from an alternative perspective. And it is really great to have doctors and alternative health specialists like this coming forward and and given alternative perspectives because I think we can all agree guys that there is something not quite right what we're being told I feel that in my heart and I just want to give you guys whether you believe this or not it's just this is this podcast has always just been about me bringing you interesting conversations and you can make your own mind up and that is certainly what in my opinion what this conversation is we're all being taught one narrative and this is a different narrative that you can listen to and you can make your own mind up on so anyway, that's all I'm going to say on this one. If you can, check out the Patreon page or the one-off donation option. It helps me to keep doing what I'm doing and bringing you these amazing alternative conversations that are really, really at the minute, are really hard to find on the planet. So I love you all and enjoy this mind-expanding conversation with Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Peace out.
Yeah, so, so first off, I just wanted to say from myself and the community, really, I want to say a huge thank you and a, a big credit for really just being true to what evidence and what research you have been uncovering. Because in my opinion, a lot of people aren't doing that and won't do that. So just to give a bit of a basic breakdown for the listeners and the, the listeners and the people who are watching. So throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, you've basically contradicted the mainstream media by stating that the coronavirus is not causing a new disease and, no, and there's no evidence of increased mortality. Just to start this, I think the best question would be to dive in. It was just to ask the question, so what is your view on this and do you think there is a real virus? Yeah, well, that, that's a good way to start. And no, you know, since the beginning, I have been following things very closely and I've been looking at the mortality statistics, for example. And I've seen essentially that worldwide, there's really no evidence of any increased number of deaths this year uh, in this pandemic situation compared to previous years. Of course, there's been a lot of uh, trickery uh, going on with how the cause of death has been recorded. Um, And that's been in multiple different countries. And we could certainly talk about that. But essentially, because of this, I can't see any evidence of any new disease whatsoever that has uh, popped up this year, because if that were the case, then there would be uh, more people would be succumbing to that disease if it were serious, as they say, and there would be excess deaths. On the other side of things, um, I've looked at the scientific evidence presented that um, is behind the, the claim, the unfounded claim, that there is a new virus that is causing some kind of respiratory illness. So when you look at those papers, actually, even if you don't dissect the scientific procedures, which I have, and simply look at the conclusion section of what the authors say that their experiment led them to conclude, and they basically say that there is an association possibly between this virus or a potential association between this virus and some illness. But not one paper does an experiment where they say, as a result of this experiment, we have conclusively shown that there's a virus and that it causes this illness. So that claim was made, um, I saw in the introduction section of one paper, and it had a reference, but that reference didn't mention anything about there being any cause. In fact, that reference had um, lighter language, like a potential... Um, association or something like that. I can't remember the exact language now. But the paper that made this claim in the introductory section essentially gave a reference that wasn't accurate. So they essentially fabricated this causal relationship. And then since that time, it's been perpetuated as a matter of fact by all of these public health organizations. But none of them can point to any paper that shows conclusively or even uh, even with probability that there's any causal relationship from any virus and any illness. So this is basically a spurious claim, and it's the claim that has justified all of the uh, crazy policies that we've been experiencing. Now, I also did go deeper and looked into the procedures by which they claim to have isolated this virus and by which they claim to have reconstructed a viral genome, which is all the set of genetic material contained by the virus. And they haven't uh, really done any procedures that could even possibly result in showing a new virus because they did not isolate the virus from the body fluids of the people afflicted with the illness. 
And without doing that, um, whatever they did show under the microscope or whatever genes they did pull uh, and sequence, we don't know what the origin of those things are. In other words, um, what they did was instead of taking the whole organism or the whole you know, particle, because it's hard to say that a virus even meets the definition of an organism, but whatever this entity is, they've never purified it out of a sick person and looked at it in its entirety. In other words, like, like for example, let's say that you wanted to um, analyze the structure of a walnut, right? Well, you would simply pick a walnut off the tree um, and separate the stem or leaves from it, right? And that's the purification process. Then you can uh, crack open the walnut and examine what's inside. You can examine the shell. You can see the the geometric structure of it. You can do a chemical analysis on it, and you know that all of those parts came from that walnut, right? So what if you had a whole walnut tree and a tree of every other nut that's in that forest, and you chop them all up into a mixture, and then you pulled out some random pieces, and then you put those pieces together into a theoretical structure, and you said, this is what a walnut is you'd see that you'd never be able to do that because you'd have pieces of so many things it would confuse the issue. And all you'd have is a theoretical idea of what a walnut might be like if it were uh, to exist in the way that you hypothesized. And that's essentially how they've done the experiments claiming to say that this is a virus. They've taken a mixture of a bunch of things, uh, chopped them up a bit, and then pulled out little fragments and reassembled those fragments together and said, oh, this is this is the genome of the virus. So really it's complete scientific nonsense, um, but they passed this off as a way of isolating the virus. And this all came about in the 1950s when the virologists at that time had pretty much given up on isolating a virus because what happened is all they found was this cellular debris uh, from damaged cells from people with an illness. And they were unable to separate out any of the particles in a pure form to say that that one is one thing and one is the other. And then they came up with this procedure that they use today, which essentially is, is kind of like I described and really doesn't prove anything. It's been misinterpreted the whole time, but perpetuated forward. And that's the standard experiment that's done with virtually every paper I've seen that claims to isolate a new virus. So I know, I know, Andrew, when you speak about the, the false positives, because I think that's a, a great area to go to, because when people are getting tested, they obviously are getting flagged up to for having coronavirus. Obviously, the big argument is that when people are going to the doctors and stuff, people are saying, I've got coronavirus, I've been tested for it. But could you speak about the false positives? Because I think that's a key element in what's going on as well. Yeah, well, I'd have to say that every single positive is a false positive. Because the test, uh, the main test, um, we can talk about antibody tests separately if you like, but the main test that's been used is what's called an RT-PCR, which stands for either real-time or reverse transcription uh, PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction. And what that is, is that it's a technique that's used to amplify tiny little amounts of DNA that are too, too few to detect by another method. And it amplifies them so that they can be looked at more closely and then um, a sequence, a specific sequence is looked for and amplified. And if there's enough of it, then they say it's a positive test. So it's not like an on-off switch uh, type of test. They have to determine what's a cutoff. So a certain amount of the amplified product uh, you know, above that threshold is a positive test and below it is a negative test. 
but it doesn't test for any virus um, because, uh, as I said, a virus has not been isolated or shown to be a cause of any illness. So it basically just detects a sequence of genetic material. And we don't really know exactly what the origin of that material is because it didn't come from a pure sample. It came from a sample that contained many, many different uh, sources of RNA. And it was really determined to be viral because it was compared to a, um, a virtual library, a database of other sequences that are said to be viral as well. And then there was supposed to be just under 80% sequence identity with a previous virus that was also constructed in the same exact way. And that's the SARS-CoV-1 virus that allegedly was responsible for the SARS outbreak in 2003. But the thing is that between humans and chimpanzees, we have 96% sequenced identity, much higher than these two sequences that they talk about. So it, it's really kind of a joke that they say it's a coronavirus based on this less than 80% uh, sequence identity. But furthermore, like we said, they basically have just made up this uh, construct of this virus because they're pulling these random little pieces of genetic material. So since the test measures these genetic material of unknown origin that's not a virus and has never been compared to isolating a virus, uh, there's really 0% accuracy in this test. We don't know what it's measuring. Um, and um, there's no gold standard at all to compare it to. So this test, I would say, is has a 0% accuracy and every single positive result is a false positive result. It's really interesting there about how it's been overclassified because even in the public now, I mean, if you look around, more people are starting to to sort of understand that it is being um, overclassified because even if you look around now on social media and stuff, there's, there's many different memes going around. There was a meme going around where it said, guy shot in the head 24 times dies of COVID-19. So it, it is like the, the public are starting to to understand that it is being um, overclassified. But in regards to it actually being overclassified, the question I wanted to ask you is, is why, why do you think they would do that? Why would, do you think they would set up a situation where they, where they are clearly sort of overclassifying everything? Yeah, well, this whole situation was set up from the beginning, mm -hmm. right? There's basically a fake virus, a fake illness, and then all of these uh, draconian policies that take away our rights and looking to re- uh, work the entire world financial system, right? And this is all for some kind of hidden purpose, but it's it's clearly not to protect us from a public health emergency. So over time, it seems that some of the contradictions or the disclosures about the true nature of what's going on have become more and more obvious. And one of those is the reclassifying of deaths. And even, you know, Dr. Burks, who is the head of the White House Task Force on Coronavirus in the United States, she came right out and said, we're, we're basically counting everything. Uh, you know, she used the word liberally, but if you read between the lines of what she's saying, she's saying that we're going to inflate these numbers. And clearly the reason to inflate the numbers is to give the perception that there's a dangerous illness that you need to be scared of, which justifies needing to stay at home on lockdown and staying away from other people and wearing masks and all that kind of thing. And on the main news, they don't report the overall mortality. In fact, even on the CDC website, you have to go to a special page that's really difficult to find. And I've been sharing that with as many people uh, who ask for it uh, to see what the total mortality from all causes is. And you can see that it's unchanged from the average of the past three years. 
But if you just go by the number of deaths that they say are attributable because they're attributing virtually everything to it, it sounds much more dangerous than it is. And really what I think they're doing is simply reclassifying all of the usual causes of death as COVID-19. So if you die of a heart attack, of uh, end-stage lung disease, of lung cancer, of pneumonia, of influenza, uh, all these kind of things and many more, they're counting it as a COVID death now. But really, that's not the cause of death. The cause of death is all of those other things that I mentioned uh, every other year. Like, uh, for example, if you look in the United States at the number of deaths attributable to heart disease this year, it's way down. And that's because they've just been re reclassified. It's not really any change. There's no um, magic thing that's happened to alleviate heart disease, right? It's just reclassification. So this is simply a way, and, you know, other doctors have talked about this as well. Um, you know, the two California doctors who uh, got a lot of flack for, for their public uh, address about this issue, they mentioned it specifically. It's just to make it seem more serious so that people um, stay compliant with these crazy measures. Absolutely insane to say the least. So what is your, um, I would love to know, Andrew, your, your gut feeling on, on what you think is actually going on here because it, it, it seems to me that there's something deep going on here. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I mean, a lot of people are saying this is the apocalypse, right? The unveiling. And um, what I see is all of the world governments working in concert um, with the same policies at the same time, which tells me that there is someone behind the scenes who's instructing all the governments what to do. So this seems uh, prima facie evidence to support the globalist agenda. And I know you had uh, Max on uh, the other day, and he was talking about this a little bit, and uh, we talked about it as well. And uh, I totally agree. If you look at various documents that have been in existence for a long time, they've sort of showed this plan, right? And we're talking about the 2010 Rockefeller Institute uh, document. Um, we're talking about Agenda 21 slash 2030. And um, there are other things. Uh, there's the World Economic Forum organizational chart, right? And there was uh, event uh, 201, uh, back in uh, October, November. So there's, there's so much evidence, um, you know, of planning. And it seems to me like this is moving towards a one world government and in a, um, a society with uh, top down control, uh, sort of a dictatorship or um, a type of society where we have very limited freedoms, everything is monitored, all our behavior, all our contacts, uh, all our personal information, and we're either uh, denied or given privileges to have basic freedoms based on our level of compliance uh, with these measures. And you can see lots of evidence of these things coming into play right now. Yeah, definitely. I would love to know as well what, what your thoughts on why you think more doctors aren't coming out because, I mean, I can obviously clearly see why they're not coming out, but it's just, I know we have more, more doctors coming out now like Dan Erickson and other people like that are coming forward now with this information, but it's, it's, it's clearly not enough at the moment. Why do you think more doctors aren't coming out about talking about this? Yeah, well, mostly I think, um, you know, they're afraid that uh, they're going to lose their jobs. They're afraid that they're going to be uh, embarrassed or censured publicly, right? And that's what's happened to some of the mainstream doctors who have uh, come out. Uh, certainly, I've faced uh, a lot of uh, criticism and ridicule. I've, uh, there have been people who called me a turd, who uh, said I wasn't even a doctor, Right, and I've lost uh, several friends as a result of this. But the thing is that I think they're really fooling themselves because uh, 
there's not going to be any return to the same kind of medical practice that they had in the future. In fact, um, I, I've been thinking for quite a long time that uh, we're really going to be using AI and, and computers to replace doctors for almost exclusively. Um, the movement to integrate electronic health records and medical practice has basically taken a lot of decision-making away from doctors. And I can see it moving towards being fully automated and only having maybe a few specialists you know, dealing with uh, cases that are really refractory and everyone else basically gets their um, health uh, doctoring from, from a computer with AI. And so, you know, so the doctors who are holding out, who are thinking that uh, they're gonna return to work and everything's gonna be okay, I think you're really missing the point of what's happening here. And now is definitely the time to come out and tell people what you're observing because you know, you know, you see what's going on. You see the empty hospitals. You see the medical staff being laid off. You see uh, them not doing uh, life-saving techniques the same with COVID patients. You see them change the protocols on the ventilators, and you see the outcomes. And you you feel the pressure to put COVID on every death certificate. And you have a duty, a responsibility um, to protect the health of those people you're working with. And part of that is, is to come out publicly and tell what's going on so that we can uh, really wake up the rest of the public and change the situation. Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting how you mentioned there about the, the hospitals being sort of empty and stuff, because if you look at the media, the media is portraying that these hospitals are being all overpacked and stuff. But it's really interesting because, I mean, a question I would ask you from that is, is it, it seems like the way that sort of the media does display the information can affect sort of public perception. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. In fact, they're experts at affecting public perception. That's really their purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're called media, but really, you know, people like you are the true journalists who are reporting what's really going on right now. What in, is in the mainstream media is propaganda and public relations. I mean, there's only really uh, two or three sources that they get all their information, right? AP, Reuters, and um, I think there's one other newsfeed. And there are very few people that own all the media companies. And you can look, actually, a lot of people have curated um, very interesting uh, video montages where they show essentially every media outlet saying the same exact message, often with the same exact words. So you know that that comes from some kind of uh, central source. Right. And that's what they're doing. They're all just echoing what's going on. And, uh, you know, that's why someone like me, I haven't been approached by one mainstream media outlet for an interview because they're not um, representing any alternative opinions. There's only one opinion. Right. And they even say that um, on other platforms that should any other opinions, dissenting opinions should be censored. Right. And obviously all the principles that um, that our nations were founded on, with respect to you know freedom of the of speech, freedom of the press, um, etc. Well, it's, it's really interesting you said talking about that as well, because even if we look, for example, of all the different podcast conversations and videos, and I know that you've had a lot of your talks took down as well. I've had a few of mine as well, but it's it's just really interesting how it's it's sort of it's 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 bad in a way, but it, at the same time, it's just actually highlighting that that we are onto something that all of us are touching a nerve within society. So it is a, I mean, I would love, what's your thoughts around that? Do you think it's a, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is there a balance with, with censorship of information? I don't mean the general sense of censorship of information, but I mean the, the, re, the response and the reaction that it causes from the people. Right. Well, you know, listen, there are only certain people who are going to look for 
the kind of information that we are providing, right? And so in, a, in, a, in essence, in a lot of ways, we're, we're preaching to the choir, yeah. right? Because people uh, select that way. So if you, but if you had my opinion or the same, similar opinion from other um, experts, um, put on all of the mainstream stations, you know, then people who would never come to uh, this YouTube channel or others that I've been interviewed on would, would hear this and say, oh my gosh, that guy doesn't sound like a whack job. You know, he's pretty rational. Maybe I should look into this. And that, that's really the function of the media in a free society, right, is to allow for public debate and alternative viewpoints so that the people can make up their mind um, when big decisions uh, are needed, right? And we're at a time when the biggest decisions are being made and they're being made without our input at all. Mm -hmm. And I wanna say that this kind of uh, public relations campaign, it's not just in the mainstream media, but it's actually pervasive. So uh, when I was getting ready, uh, well, not when I, before I was getting ready for this podcast this morning, um, I was helping my son with some schoolwork and my kids are in a private, school because I don't want them to be fully indoctrinated in the public schools. And my son, who's a, he's in fifth grade, and he had um, uh, this uh, document to read about the 1918 Spanish flu. So I was very interested in that because that's one of the things I've studied uh, in my recent uh, research. And I began looking through this and I saw that actually it portrayed the Spanish flu inaccurately, historically. And it, you could see that it was pretty much written in order to create fear about the current pandemic situation. So for example, they talked about how it was spread by contagion. But if you look at the actual historical data that it popped up in places around the world that were far away from each other in too short a time for it to be spread by people, because at that time there was no airplane travel. Right. So it took a long time, for example, from to people to get from North America to Africa or Asia or even Europe. Right. Because they were traveling by boat. And when the cases popped up, it wasn't possible that it was spread that way. So you see this contagion thing is really important because it was definitely not consistent with the Spanish flu in 1918. And they even did several studies on human volunteers in Boston. Uh, where they tried to pass it from person to person. So they had people sick with the Spanish flu and they had them, you know, cough and sneeze and give all kinds of secretions. And then they put that into healthy people's mouths and noses and did a couple of other things. And they couldn't make one person sick by this route. So you see, even in my son's private school, um, they're giving information that is setting the stage for the children to be indoctrinated with the germ theory dogma and to be ready for future viruses to come and make everybody sick, right? So that way they're much easier to get to go along with whatever public, you know, public health measures uh, are instituted. I will say one thing, I bet them teachers are looking forward to the next parents even when you go in. <laughs> That'll be for sure. Well, I think the school, you know, I tried to express to the school some of my alternative uh, viewpoints and gave them a couple of references with scientific information. And what I got was uh, complete dead silence. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I mean, they, they do some strange things like uh, they were going to drop off some materials at people's homes. And so I said, well, you know, my daughter would love to see you. You know, why don't you ring the bell and have a quick visit? 
And, you know, of course I'm thinking, you know, come in, I'll make some tea, you know, we can sit down like normal people, but I didn't expect them to do that. I expected them maybe to, you know, talk from outside or keep their distance, but at least have an interaction. And they didn't respond to me about that either. They just basically made sure to show up and drop the stuff off and not even ring the bell or anything. And I just happened to see it later on in the day. So, you know, it's just really awkward uh, kind of experiences and uh, lack of willingness to discuss anything. With having children as well, Andrew, how do you how do you view the psychological implications of this? Because it's clear to say that we don't really understand as a civilization how this is imprinting on on children's minds and stuff. How do you view that side of things? Yeah, well, I'd say we actually do have quite a, a good understanding of that, and and it's all negative. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the biggest thing I'm concerned about is it, you know the masks, especially with young children, because uh, you know babies and such they um, imprint on their mother or their caregiver by their facial expression. And, you know, this, we, I think I talked about this once before, but there's something called object impermanence. When uh, babies are really young up until a certain age, they, if they don't see an object, they think it's disappeared, right? They don't understand that it could be behind a wall. And, you know, the, the child, the baby game peekaboo is based on this right? Because um, they think you completely disappeared when you put your hands in front of your face. And that's why it's funny when you come back so quickly. Um, so if, if a baby is with their parent and the parents are wearing masks, they're, they're going to basically feel abandoned because they won't realize that that's their parents there with them. Um, and I think that would have an extremely profound effect that possibly could um, affect relationships throughout that, that person's life later on. But uh, the rules about returning to school that I've seen proposed in some places also, it basically doesn't allow for any normal socialization at all. And, you know, my, my children, um, they, they really miss school. But the thing that they miss about it is being able to socialize with their friends, right? That's a big part of it for them. And, you know, that's part of the education that we want because we want our children to be socialized and learn how to get along with others and uh, you know, play in teams and resolve conflicts and all of that. And they're not going to be able to do that. That's going to be totally missing. And they're going to be starved, you know, for attention and social interaction. And I think it's going to be like torture. I, I don't even know how children are going to be able to comply with this, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, maybe the first couple of days or weeks. Um, but after that, I mean, I, I don't really see how it e could even be sustained. But I'm telling you, I'm not willing to let my children be subject uh, to those uh, crazy rules. Yeah, really good point there as well. But also I was thinking as well from even from, a, I know we're talking from the psychological perspective on the kids, um, but even from a, a microbial level, um, I mean, we know that, I mean, you'll know this from a microbial level, it's important for other human beings to be like touching other human beings and interacting with other human beings for our microbial health. Yeah, well, there is uh, definitely something to that. You know, I think it's uh, somewhat of an illusion that just because we're uh, staying a certain amount of feet away from each other, that we're, we're not going to exchange microbes and genetic information. It's still going to happen, right? We're going to touch the same surfaces. We're going to be in the same, breathing the same air. Um, you know, it may be inhibited, but uh, it's hard to say to what degree. But um, think about living without human touch. You know, think about what that would be like. I mean, we are uh, social creatures. We live in communities. We don't live as solitary creatures, you know, like, um, like leopards do or certain other animals. We need that interaction. 
and uh, we can't maintain our health and welfare without it. So it's going to take a major, major toll in many ways. Yeah, definitely. I think as well, it'll take a toll on maybe levels that we don't even understand as well from like from deeper from a deeper level from a from a spiritual level. I think we, there'll be things that we don't understand of the implications of of. I mean, there's many, many great minds in the past, like Sigmund Freud and people like that talk about how we, we, it's not, we don't only have biological signatures, but we have energetic signatures that, that are affected amongst many different people. I mean, even a, you'll know this with, you, with your kids and stuff as well, even when you're with your kids in a general sense, your, your kids and your babies pick up on your energetic signatures. So there's, there's a, I think there's a lot that we really don't know what's go, what, what, what the implications of this are going to be. I mean, we do know what it's going to be, like you said, but in a sense, just going forward with it we really don't i would love to see your um your thoughts on the vac on the vaccine side of things because this is really now the media as we look at the media now it's really starting to ramp up there's a lot of propaganda pushing a, a mandatory vaccination vaccination yeah absolutely and um you know there's so many ways to look at this but um you know after uh, going through medical school and uh, working as a physician early on, I never really questioned vaccines because they were, you know, we were told that they were the miracle of modern medicine, that they were one of the, the most important things and that they saved so many lives and eradicated all these really problematic illnesses. And uh, a few years ago, when I decided to start looking at that, right, because I had just reached a point where I was looking at all kinds of things and uh, questioning the mainstream uh, narrative. What I found was quite astonishing because there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that any vaccine ever eradicated or prevented an illness. Um, and furthermore, they don't even have to prove uh, that they can prevent an illness in order to be approved by the FDA. They have a special pathway in the United States um, that uh, all they have to show is that you have an antibody in your blood, which is really not very meaningful at all. And uh, there's no randomized controlled trial, which is the standard uh, way to evaluate a new therapeutic. So there, there's maybe only one actual trial like that in all of the literature for all vaccines. And it was from the 1970s for measles. And it didn't really conclusively show a benefit. So we're talking about vaccines as something that have never been proven to uh, be successful in what they are purported to do. On top of that, we have so much um, illness, injury, and death from vaccines that is largely hidden from the public in the United States because of the Vaccine Act, which essentially eliminated any liability for vaccine manufacturers and created this secret closed court in the government uh, where that's funded by taxpayer money, where they can pay a limited uh, amount for claims from vaccine injuries. And uh, many people don't even know this exists, but the reason it was established is because there were so many adverse outcomes from vaccines that the companies couldn't make them profitably because too many people got hurt or died and then sued them. They were losing money on it. And that should have been an indication that's something that you don't want to keep doing. If all these people are getting hurt and dying and having to sue, that, that's the, market, the market's way of saying this product is no good. But instead of listening to that, we said, well, we don't care. We'll just, we'll just give you relief from that liability and um, we'll take it up in the government. And, uh, you know, the people who get hurt or injured, they'll, they'll deal with it uh, however they see fit, right? And we basically give them limited to no remedy. So if you want to look at it that way, then 
there's no way this vaccine that they're proposing for coronavirus could work. Uh, furthermore, there's no virus that's been shown to cause any illness. So what exactly is the vaccine trying to protect us from? So the only uh, conclusion I can come to is that the vaccine is for uh, a clearly nefarious purpose, has nothing to do with protecting our health. And if you look at the technology, they're using a new different type of technology uh, for vaccines that they have not been successful with in the past. And what essentially they're giving us is a piece of DNA with some kind of gene on it. And they're using a technique called electroporation to deliver an electric current to our cells during the injection that creates little holes in our cells that can take up this free DNA. And then we're supposed to make the gene product from this DNA in our own cells and express it. And somehow that will create immunity. But what's really going on here is that they are genetically modifying us with this vaccine. So we'll be, you know, genetically modified humans as a result. And I don't know what the genetic modification will entail, how it will change our physiology. I do know that uh, infertility or population control has been uh, stated many times as one of the main agendas of these worldwide vaccine programs from organizations like Gavi, uh, you know, under Bill Gates and others. Very wild stuff to say the least. That, and I mean, I did, it is it, what I do see though. There is positives. I do see a lot of people more pushing against this vaccine. I mean, even if you go on social media now and you have a, have a, a conversation with your friends, people are really understanding and and saying that they're not having it. They, re, they really are, and. There is, there is like this, a huge, um, there, there is going to be a huge backlash from a, a lot of people. I do feel like they've underestimated a lot of people's intelligence. I, I feel like they've underestimated a, a lot of people's ability to, to, to actually have a bit sort of spirit with inside themselves. What, what would you say, Andrew, is the best way to sort of, to, to sort of push back against this? Because that's a, that's a vital question that we need to ask ourselves. How can we, as a, as a person, as a community, actually push back against this? Yeah, well, um, I agree uh, with much of what you're saying. And, you know, part of the history of this is that while they have had compulsory vaccines, it's always been for school children. Mm -hmm. And they've never, you know, there's been legislation proposed in New York, for example, to uh, make your driver's license renewal contingent upon getting a measles or an MMR vaccine booster, right? But that's not very popular because adults don't want to be uh, forced, uh, you know, to be jabbed. Right. So so I think they're just based on that, there was going to be more resistance uh, to this. But, yeah, it certainly does seem like a lot of people are uh, waking up about this issue. And I feel that the initially it's going to be a voluntary operation. I don't I mean, there are some places that have passed laws, um, you know, saying that it's mandatory. Um, I'm not sure if those are even legally justified because there are, are international treaties that basically protect against this based upon the Nuremberg Code. Um, so we'll have to see how that plays out. But any place where it's going to be voluntary and consensual, then it's simple. You just do not give your consent. Um, I think that there, you know, there's no way I'm ever going to agree to take this shot. And if it comes down to having to physically defend my body's integrity, um, I'll do that. And, but that will be a last resort. Um, I think there are several legal approaches that one can take um, to protect oneself as well. But I wouldn't rely on those necessarily because I wouldn't rely on our judicial system to actually deliver justice. 
But um, certainly among those uh, potential remedies, um, there are, I've heard of some class action lawsuits that have already been either filed or in the process of uh, being filed. There's uh, something called a notice of liability, which is essentially a way to renegotiate the contract uh, between you and the state about the vaccine because we've actually already agreed to it on some level. And that would renegotiate it such that the health commissioner or anyone who's taken an oath to protect the public would be held personally liable for any damages from the vaccine. So this is uh, something that's been successful in some other areas and has a lot of potential to be successful in this current uh, situation. Um, I'm also uh, associated with um, a group um, that you could actually find some information about at gemstoneuniversity.org. And um, within that group, a number of us are pursuing what's called the status correction, where we step-by-step uh, step disentangle ourselves from the fictitious legal system that we're embroiled in, uh, which is you know, headed up by the corporate governments around the world. And once we are able to be successful in that pursuit, we'll be able to actually, uh, so we won't, we won't be under the jurisdiction at all of the state which uh, makes these requirements, but we will be, be able to have a process based on that, that even people who haven't gone through the status correction can still use to protect themselves uh, legally, and that would be called um, an equity argument. And um, I think we, we will have that operational uh, by the time uh, that, that a vaccine is uh, ready to be deployed um, to protect people. So I would definitely urge people to um, not panic about this right now because it is going to take time. Um, they do report a lot of accelerated uh, timelines, right? But the earliest I could possibly see would be early 2021 that they could really claim to have something ready to go. And so that still gives us, you know, more than six months to uh, prepare all of our strategies and uh, how we're going to deal with the situation. And like I said, I'm, I'm pretty confident that in almost all places, it's going to be a on a voluntary basis um, originally, uh, initially, sorry. Um, I think one other consideration that, that you should make is um, to think about what you're willing to sacrifice on a short-term basis as a result of not complying with these um, you know, orders or because there's going to be a lot of coercion, uh, there's going to be a lot of social pressure um, from other people to uh, cooperate with these things. And so there could be, you know, some risks, like you could say not be able to travel internationally, you know, or even on an airline if you uh, refuse to get the vaccine. And so, you know, for, my, for me personally, like there is no risk that I'm not willing to take to avoid getting that because uh, I don't want to be killed by this vaccine. And I think that is a possibility. So if I... You know, I've already lost one job uh, for refusing to wear a mask. If I get put in jail or whatever, taken away from my home, um, you know, I'm willing to take that risk in order to avoid being uh, injured or killed by whatever this vaccine is, is going to be doing. That's a really good question you asked there. How do you position yourself ready? Because I think there is in our own lives, I think from we can all look at all our, look at our own lives and, and try and put ourselves in the best position, maybe 
financially, uh, psychologically, and spiritually to actually um, face a challenge like this? Because it will it will be a challenge when it comes around the corner, especially if you're in a position where you are completely, maybe you're completely reliant upon the system. Maybe you've got no um, savings or something, or you don't grow your own food or something like that, you know? So there's a lot of, there's a, there is a lot of ways, positive ways that you can put yourself in a better position. And also you can see where the world does also need to go as well. But just to end this on a sort of a, try to find a, a bigger positive, have you thought about how we can maybe use this sort of this opportunity and all this information that is coming forward as a sort of a catalyst to evolve humanity in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And that's really uh, what I would, uh, am going to be very uh, heavily involved in, in doing that. And I think uh, the way that, that I envision and many other people is that we essentially leave this system and we start developing our own communities. And I think, you know, this uh, one path to do this is to find some rural property and um, get some people together and, you know, get this property and move there and, and start growing food and figuring out how to be off grid, how to live like this. There are a lot of uh, resources out there that are available, a lot of people who are organizing these kinds of efforts. And the more people who opt out of our current system, toward this new free decentralized kind of society. It will get bigger and bigger and the system that we're embroiled in currently will start to fall apart and collapse. And I think there's already signs that that's happening because they're taking far too many steps. I mean, look look at the economic system. It's gonna be in a shambles, right? And how's that gonna affect their ability to keep pressing on uh, with more, more control measures? You know, so I, I think that's, uh, the way to go. And uh, there are many people talking about that and many opportunities to get involved with uh, groups. You don't have to be, you know, an island to yourself out there. Um, this is the time to uh, thinking about mobilizing and, you know, creating a new uh, type of society, a new way to live where we can truly be free. And, you know, I want to also emphasize, you mentioned the spiritual aspect of this, and I, I can't say how important that is enough because you, you have to be in a state where you can see the bigger picture, where you have a sense of where we, where we come from as, as humans, as beings. Um, you have to understand something about consciousness and about how we're all interrelated to each other. And you have to be able to you know, see that um, what's going on now is, is not real. Like many of these things are not real. And, um, you know, the truth is a spiritual journey, finding out what is really the truth about everything, not just the details of this pandemic, but the bigger picture of life and how we're all involved and understanding that the true nature uh, of us is to cooperate with each other and to collaborate and to reason out our differences. And it's not the what you know, how it's portrayed in pop culture about, you know, future post-apocalyptic societies where there are all these psychopaths trying to kill each other and, you know, for getting more power and territory, like that, that's all programming. That's not what we are really like or would be really like in that kind of a post-apocalyptic world. We'd be trying to help each other. We'd be sharing resources and technologies and ideas with each other so that we can grow and become trade partners and help support each other. And that's the natural state. And I think this current situation presents a real opportunity for us to realize that in, in actuality. 
I love that. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. And I just want to say as well, thank you so much for sort of bringing this information forward because you really do with the information and the way you present the topic and stuff, you really do. Um, it, it's really great just to have someone like you to, to bring this information forward. It really is. I couldn't say any more how much more important it is. It really is. Um, it really is great anyway. Well, I feel actually very privileged uh, that I'm able to, you know, understand this stuff and communicate it in such a way that's useful. And, and uh, you know, I want to just do everything I can to help people understand and make the right decisions and see um, a good future ahead. Thank you so much. I really do mean that from the bottom of my heart. I really mean that. Um, it's just, it's so great to have someone like you on the on the side of actually just questioning and go and, and on it's not even a question of really of good and bad. It's just actually having the ability to question. And that's what people aren't, a lot of people aren't willing to do that. And you're, you, you come from more of sort of an academic point of view where you do pack a punch sort of say, and um, you just present this information really good. And you, you, it's be, you just basically empowering people to ask questions within their own lives. And I think that's, that's, that's what we should all be doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. You don't have to agree with everything I say. I just want you to look at the information yourself and make up your own mind. And don't be told what to think by me or some newscaster on CNN or some government official. The onus is on you to figure it out what, what the truth is. Thanks so much for checking out that podcast. Really interesting one, in my opinion, guys. I hope you found that of some interest and it maybe made you question some things that you might not have before. If you can, if you found resonance in that podcast there and you feel that maybe that could help someone else in someone else's life and maybe take them out of the fear mode and realize and to make them step into their true power and actually realize maybe what is, maybe there is something that is going on that we're not being told, please feel free to share that with someone else in your life who maybe, who you maybe feel could need that conversation and it might help them change their perspective or, or way of seeing the current situation. I do feel that over the next couple of weeks and months, we are going to see more and more doctors are going to emerge and more and more people are going to start questioning this narrative. I know a lot of you guys are already questioning this. I've been questioning it for a while. But it is just really great to to see that that there is sort of a counter-reaction to, to the things that we can see that is going on in the world. And not only just... Like I said, not only just in the past, as you know, it was one person speaking out. Now many people are starting to speak out and in, in not just in a, a sort of an old way where you should just be classed as a conspiracy theorist. This is very intelligent people who have sort of had enough and they are coming forward and just sharing and being true and honest to what they're seeing in front of them. And I think that's what we all need to do in our lives. We need to be honest to the information that we see in front of us and not and try and move our beliefs or try and move out our um, preconceptions or maybe societal um, societal blocks out of the way and just be true to everything that is in front of us. And that is, I think, and I think if we, the more that we follow that thread of interest in our lives and more that we follow that thread of honesty and truth, I think we will all um, not only just create a better lives for ourselves, but create a better lives for everyone and future generations around us. So like I said, guys, if you can, if you, fa- if you think someone else might resonate with that podcast, please feel free to share with your family and your friends. So anyway, guys, I love you all and thanks so much. Next, in a few days' time, maybe either tomorrow or the next day, depending on how quick I can get it edited, I'm going to do. I've got a podcast with Charles Einstein, which is a he's a fantastic mind. We talk about 
what is going on currently in the world now but we talk about the conversation more from a psychological and a spiritual perspective and how maybe some of these things that are going on could be implicating us from for a positive way and also from a negative way in the up and coming weeks months years and 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 in the future in the rest of the future so anyway keep an eye out for that in a few days time if you can guys check out the one-off donation option in the patreon page i love you all and just to play this podcast out as i always do i don't even know what song i'm going to play but i'm going to play a song anyway (laughs) at the end of the podcast peace out
language. Please redefine the 